verses 1 to 14. If you do have a church Bible, it's on page 850, page 850. When Jesus had spoken these words, the words that we just spent weeks on, that beautiful upper room discourse, and in that prayer, the great high priestly prayer, as he prays about his mission, as he prays for the disciples in front of him, as he prays for you and me. The Bible is the living and active word of God, coupled now with the presence of Christ in our midst. This is a living word to us. And the ground about which we are now to enter is the last earthly moments of Jesus' life. There is pathos, there is poignancy, there is horror, there is love, there is mercy, and there is grace in these chapters to be had. When Jesus had spoken these things, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. There was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they had all drew back and fallen to the ground. So they asked him again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you give me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, who else, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers, the captains, and the officers of the Jewish people arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May we never lose the wonder of the cross. May we never lose sight of Jesus. May we never take him for granted. May we never assume we know enough about him. May we never leave knowledge of him in intellectual exercise, but may it go into our hearts and transform our whole being. This morning, Lord Jesus, come. Use me to speak your word. Not because I am anything, but because your word is truth and your word is life. May the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. And for the congregation, I thank you for each one in the Lord this morning. May you give us ears to hear. This is not an exercise in listening simply with our ears, but discerning through the Spirit what you're saying to your people. So come, Holy Spirit, and make the meditations of all our hearts acceptable in your sight too. O Lord, our strength 
and our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. Famous authors tell me that you should never start a story by saying it was a dark and stormy night. But it was a dark and stormy night on the 10th of January, many moons ago. And if you were observing this lone and solitary figure standing by the riverside, you wouldn't have thought much of him. He was a short wee man. He didn't have much to possess him. He looked fierce. He looked determined. But he was standing looking across a river bike. And he knew that if he crossed that river, everything would change. History would be shaped. The destinies of many men and women would rise and fall if he crossed that river that dark and stormy night. And if you were close enough to him, you would know that Gaius, as he wrestled in his mind with the decisions he was about to take, suddenly comes to a moment of strong clarity and says, Alia acta est, the die is cast. And so Gaius Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. And that has entered into our words and into our language. If somebody crosses the Rubicon, it's a movement they'll make that nothing will be the same again. Everything will change. And as we know, Caesar would go to Rome and sack it and build up his own dictatorship. Rome then would alter the history of millions upon millions of people across the world. Nothing would be the same because of one man. But that one man was driven by many things, most of which was greed, vanity, the desire to be the most powerful person in the world. He didn't care about others. And his mighty empire, though it gave us laws and though it's given us many things, wasn't for the benefit and love of mankind. <clears throat> Come with me to Jerusalem. Walk with me down the street that leads to the Lion Gate, walks past the Pool of Bethesda, and come down into the Valley of Kidron. Drop down 200 feet into the valley, and there's a, a dirty, we have what we call in Northern Ireland, none of you will understand this apart from Grace, a shock, which means a muddy way by. And see another figure, a figure whose face is resolute, who is marching out into the coldness of the night, and he is walking up the Mount of Olives, to Gethsemane. Jesus crossed a Rubicon that night because Jesus has now set in motion all that he has told us in all of the Gospels that he is going to the cross, that he is going to his departure, that he is going to his death. And he goes not in timorousness, not in vanity or pride, but he marches that sorrowful path in love. You may hear the word love this morning and think of all the sentimental attachments, but set them aside because love is truly defined here in God's word by what Jesus is about to do. And as he walks down that valley, and it's a beautiful valley, I've walked it myself, I've followed the steps as much as we humanly can, and you walk down and you walk up, and he turns into the wayside, the place called Gethsemane. John doesn't tell us it's Gethsemane, but we know from the other Gospels that it's Gethsemane. And he walks in. And the disciples pull back. And whilst it's not in our text this morning, I need to give you this context from the other Gospels. As the disciples pull back, Jesus goes alone and falls to his face in great sorrow. Sorrow is an awful thing, isn't it? It's like a thirst that can't be quenched. 
It's like a, a heartache that won't be healed. And Jesus goes into the garden in great sorrow and he falls to the ground and he prays to his Father in heaven, Father, let this cup pass from me. Was that card ice? No, sir, no lady. Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. He prays it three times. And the anxiety and the power and the pressure upon him in that garden, the garden that Gethsemane is called a wine press and Jesus was in it, spiritually speaking. And as such is the profound sorrow that he starts to sweat great drops of blood. Now, if you're a doctor or a medical person in this room, you know this is a genuine condition that indicates that a patient is under extreme stress. Because in that garden, he started to take the cup which she will talk about, the cup of God's wrath against sin. In the garden, he took us to Corinthians 5, tells us he started to take the weight of sin upon him. Just as man had rebelled against God in the garden, so salvation would now start to be redone in another garden. And it was done by Jesus. And he wrestles with God in prayer and finally peace and resolution comes. And as he stands, picture him in your mind's eye. I think sometimes we're too detached from these stories. I think sometimes, not stories, from this history. We're sometimes too detached from it. We read it clinically. See him standing there, the saviour of the world, the son of God, with sweat, bloody sweat, pouring down his face. See the knees covered in mud where he has wrestled in prayer with his heavenly father. See him stand and look to his closest friends who are fast asleep. He is alone. And see him walk forth. Jesus went over the brook Kidron. The disciples entered the garden. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met with the disciples there. There's a knife to the heart with that, isn't there? This is the place where Jesus would go. It was probably by some rich supporter. Give him the keys to the garden. Said, go there, Jesus. Rest with your disciples. They'd have prayed there. They'd have shared there. Jesus would have poured his heart out to them. And Judas, the betrayer, knows that. And so he leads the troops there. A Roman cohort was made up of 600 men. Now, admittedly, all the men didn't turn up for their duty. But Judas not only had the Roman cohort, he had the temple priests as well. So this great band of men starts marching down Kidron as Jesus wrestles with his father. And you hear them coming. They're not quiet. They're loud. They've got swords. I mean, look at what John describes us here. They're coming to arrest one man. And all six or eight hundred of them come with their torches, their weapons, their clanging, their banging. Jesus could have hid. Jesus could have went to a different garden. He knew that Judas knew this place. But firstly, in verses 2 to 4, brothers and sisters, I want you to look at the courage of Jesus. Jesus went straight to Gethsemane. Jesus knew what was about to happen. John tells us many times, especially in John chapter 10, no one will take his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. What courage there is in our Lord Jesus. Even if you don't believe in him this morning, even if you don't reckon with him, look at the courage of this figure who after wrestling in extreme stress, who is bearing the weight of sin, who knows that his father is about to turn his face from him for what he is to do for us, who steps forward out of the crowd two and one. They entered the place. Judas came with the betrayers, verse four. Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. Jesus' death wasn't an accident. It wasn't a tragedy of the Romans making, though they certainly helped. 
Jesus' death was God's divine plan being put into action to save and offer salvation to all those who would believe in his name. And he steps forward here. He steps forward into the crowd. He must have been some sight. The courage of Jesus and the cowardice of men. This band, Judas steps forward and plants the kiss on his cheek. John doesn't record it, but the other guys do. Jesus is courageous. He is of strong heart. And he is entering into this process, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks, as he is scourged. As he is whipped and beaten, as he is ridiculed by Pilate, as he is slapped in the face by the high priest, as he is treated abominably, he never once flinches from his mission to redeem the world. Jesus is courageous. What a saviour. And he is consistent in all his actions. If you read any of the Gospels, who is it when the Pharisees rose up harshly against the disciples? Who stood between them and the disciples? Jesus. Who walked into places of disease and disgust as if he could just walk in without a care in the world and brought healing? Jesus. Who would touch a leper? Jesus. Who would feed 5,000 men and women and all the children, more of them? Jesus. Who would look death in the face? I hate death. It isn't what God intended for this world. Who would look death in the face, that last enemy, and not flinch? Jesus. Look at the courage of your Savior this morning and take heart, brother and sister, in the courage of your Savior. He is going to the cross for you. He is not losing heart for you. He is determined that you personally would come to know him. And so he steps forward into the crowd, the beautiful courage of Jesus. Secondly, look at the majesty of Jesus. I love this scene. There's almost an element of, of, if it weren't so tragic, there's almost an element of slapstick in it. Jesus stands before this crowd, this one man, as one commentator said, the light of the world standing before these men in their darkness with their torches are trying to extinguish it. They can't. And Jesus stands facing this crowd and he says to them, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Who are you looking for? I'm not, going to make it, I'm not going to make it easy for you guys. Who are you looking for? We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus says this, I am he. Now we've been through John's gospel and I know it's been, how many years is it? Two years now we've been going through it. But we know from John's gospel that there's seven sayings that Jesus gave describing himself. And he used the preface, I am. Ego eme in the Greek, I am, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of salvation. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And I am the vine. And all these descriptions of Jesus show the beauty of his majesty, do they not? Bread of life that we will never, ever hunger eternally. The light of the world, no matter how dark it gets, will always shine and its light falls on you, brother and sister, this morning. The door of salvation against the wrath and just judgment of God, there is an open door which we can go through to be saved and it is Jesus Christ. The good shepherd. How many of us, and I've quoted it many times in this church, but it's a beautiful psalm. How many of us love Psalm 23? The Lord is. Want. He leads me by the still water. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life. 
No other, and if I may use the term about Jesus, so I don't like using the term about Jesus because it's a bad term, but no other religious figure in all of world history has made the claims that he has made and been able to sustain them. There is an empty tomb in Jerusalem because the resurrection and the life fought death, beat death, and rose again triumphantly. He is the way. In this pluralistic, multi-faith, multi-option. I mean, life is ridiculous sometimes, isn't it? I went to buy some smallons away doing chocolates in Scotland, so I'm feeding myself. Which is great because the chip shops are fantastic. (laughs) But life's mad, isn't it? I mean, I just wanted to get some cereal the other day in Tesco's. And I walked up the cereal aisle in Tesco's and I just wanted something tasty. There's about 150 different types of cereal. Who needs 150 different types of cereal? Who? Oh, there's always one. In this multi-choice, multi-option world, Jesus comes up against it. You may call him intolerant, you may call him this, you may call him that, but he is the only way to God, the only truth, and the only one who can give life. All others are fake pretenders. Lastly, he is the vine. All these things show us the majesty of Jesus as he stands in the garden. But when he says, I am, to all these sayings, he does something more. He makes the claim, the outrageous claim, but the absolutely true claim that he is God. I am goes back to Exodus 13, 14. When Moses was standing before the burning bush, Moses, as you know, was a shepherd in the wilderness. He was there for 80 years. I mean, imagine waiting to do your calling in life for 80 years. For 80 years, he's in the wilderness. Or no, 40 years he's in the wilderness after. 40 years he's in the wilderness. One day he sees this burning bush, this bush, as the Presbyterians have pinched for their motto, this bush that burns but is not consumed. There's a power about this bush that he is drawn to. And as he walks towards this bush, the bush speaks to him. It says, take off your shoes, for the ground on which you are standing is holy. Now, ground doesn't become holy because it's made holy. Ground becomes holy because the presence of the living God is there. The supernatural holy power of the eternal one of Israel came down into that bush and says to Moses, Moses, bless him, was having one of those days, and Moses said, who are you? God answers, I am who I am. Total sovereignty. Total unchangeableness. Total power. Have you ever considered that about God? He never changes. We sing in our hymns, no shadow or variation of change with him. And he is the one who would shatter the power of Egypt, who would send the ten plagues, ultimately the last one, the death of the firstborn. He is the one who would part the Red Sea and dry the seabed so that the whole people of Israel, all one million and so often, could cross to safety on the other side. He is the one who would feed them in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years. He is the one who Moses told them had created the whole universe. Creation isn't random. It isn't because of a collision of atoms. It isn't in the greatest imaginations of Richard Dawkins. No, the simple answer to creation is this, that God spoke and everything came into being. So when you hear in your Bible in the Old Testament about Yahweh, I am who I am, that is God. And now Jesus says to these soldiers, I am. The majesty of Jesus, the courage of Jesus. The soldiers respond. I mean, look at that. It is almost comical in some ways. 
These 600 men, when Jesus says, I am, they drew back and fall to the ground. I don't know what you think of Jesus this morning. He is gentle. He is kind. But he is also majestic and holy and powerful. He is not some deity we put in our fireplace and do homage to like Moby Dick's wee friend. If you haven't read Moby Dick, don't worry about that. He is the Holy Sovereign One of Israel, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three, three persons in one essence. And don't let anyone tell you that God put Jesus up to going to the cross. Don't let anyone tell you this is some sort of cosmic a child abuse. No, that's blasphemous. Here the Father in his love sends the Son, and the Son in his love agrees to come. They are united, and the Holy Spirit sustains them. The Godhead is the one who comes to redeem and save you. God is not begrudging you salvation. Look at, look at wee Nathaniel and Tosin there. When Tosin looks at wee Nathaniel, sorry, I caught her on the phone there. I wasn't doing that on purpose. When you look at that wee baby, you would give him everything. And a true parent would, wouldn't they? How many of you in this room would hold back from giving your children... Don't say yes, I just... A true parent will not hold back from giving their child something, will they? As I said, if God does bless us with kids, I'm going to be a nightmare because if I have a daughter and she looks at me with those blue eyes, I'll, I'll just give my wallet over. Why then do we doubt the love of God for us? He, he died for us, amen, Anne. He made us. He sustains us. And they come now because the only person who could save us, the only person who could redeem us from the judgment due us, as we'll see in a second, the cup, the only person who could lift us out of the mire of clay and sin was God himself. And he comes fully. God is not stingy in his love. The courage of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus. He says, I am. The soldiers draw back and fall to the ground. I mean, bless these guys. <laughs> Who's going to get up and try and arrest Jesus after that? And yet in the majesty of Jesus, we see the darkness of man because they do. After this display of Jesus' divine power, they rise up. Jesus asks them again, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. We reckon, John doesn't record it, but we reckon this is the point when Judas goes forward and kisses him on the cheek. I've had some betrayals in my day. I think we all have. We know the pain of it. But Judas goes here, kisses the gate of heaven. Jesus carries on. In the midst of the calluses of man, verse 7 to 9, we see the compassion of Jesus. Our Lord is amazing. I mean, of all people at all times and all places, he could be excused for having a lot in his mind at this moment. I think that's fair to say. I don't say it disrespectfully. He's going to the cross. He's just been in the garden. There's 600 men in front of him who don't look very friendly. Judas has just kissed him in the cheek. If it's me you've come for, let these ones go. In that moment, he is still compassionate to his wayward disciples. Amen. He is compassionate to his wayward disciples. 
He is more concerned about them so that he would be the good shepherd as he promised that not one of them would be lost. He promised that back in John 10, verse 17. Or verse 28, sorry, verse 28. The compassion of Jesus, his tender thoughtfulness. Brother and sister, the one who is courageous and majestic, who is your saviour, is also the compassionate one. Are you here this morning and feel that you have exhausted his compassion? Don't be daft. Are you here this morning and feel that you've reached the extent of his love? As they say in Scotland, away and boil your head. Here is Jesus, compassionate, loving, tender, and wooing. If you are in Christ, if you're abiding in the vine this morning, brother and sister, take heart from who your Savior is. He is courageous, he is majestic, and he is compassionate. Now, in the midst of this beautiful display of compassion, in steps Simon Peter. Who else? And Peter here, bless him. Again, you can't fault the guy's love. He does love Jesus, but what he thought he was going to do with his sword against 600 men, I don't know. And the guy takes a swing at somebody, and I'd imagine he was trying to take their head off, but he ends up cutting off their ear. Jesus doesn't need our help. And Jesus doesn't need our help to work our salvation. How often we try and add to the cross. How often we try and say, well, Jesus, what you did was great, but just let me bring my little bit of righteousness. Let me bring my my little bit of works because our pride doesn't like to surrender easily. There is pride in us. Pride from the original sin that we can look after ourselves, thank you very much. We can save ourselves, thank you very much. God, if you you do your wee bit, we'll add to it. No, no. No, no. It would take the complete, utter action of the Savior to save and redeem us and redeem us completely. Let me give you a wee hint to Easter in a few weeks' time. Jesus will cry from the cross as his last cry, Tetelesti, paid in full, or it is finished. Jesus didn't need Peter to defend him. And what he needs from you and me is to fall in the line behind him and to trust him and believe in him for believing in him is life, forgiveness, and freedom. You cannot add to your salvation. All you can do is bring your sin and your shame and lay it at his feet and say, Lord, take it. And he does fully and completely. Tonight, we'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It was a passage that I was saved through. Beautiful passage. I love it. God made him to be sin who knew no sin for us so that we might receive the righteousness of Christ. Martin Luther talks about this as, I mean, Luther, bless me, had a wonderful way of describing things. He said, this picture is this, that a prince comes from a foreign land. Hopefully it wasn't Prince Harry. (laughs) This prince comes from a foreign land, full of riches, full of power, full of majesty, and he comes, and it's almost like you can picture, what do you call those two? Why do these things come into my head in a little sermon? What do you call them? He carried her out in his arms. Officer and gentleman? No. What's that film? Anyway, forget about that. But you see in a lot of films where this really rich and powerful person comes and he, he falls in love with the, the scullery girl or the maid or the, the bin collector or something like that. Luther says Jesus stepped out, the prince of heaven. And he looked around for somebody to cast his love upon. And he said his love upon the girl in town who had a reputation. The girl in town who had nothing to bring but disgrace and dishonor to his name. And he married her. Hosea talks about this. 
And when he married her, she got all his riches, all his wealth, and he took all her shame. The great exchange. When Jesus went to the cross, he took our sin, he took our shame, he dealt with it. And in exchange, he gives us righteousness, right standing with God. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us himself. And some of you this morning need to stop fighting God. You need to stop wrestling with God and trying to earn your own righteousness. You cannot do it. But receive Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Lydia, we're looking at Acts 16 in a few weeks' time, like Lydia who said, pray to the Lord, Lord, open my heart to receive you, and he did. He is courageous, he is majestic, he is compassionate. Lastly, we look at the obedience of Jesus, verses 10 to 13. Peter chops off the guy's ear. We know from Luke's gospel that Jesus then heals the ear. Luke 22, verse 51. No more of this, Peter. And touching him, he healed his ear. I mean, isn't that an amazing thing? This guy's arresting Jesus. Jesus heals his ear. But Jesus must do this. Look there what he says to Peter. He says it so innocently. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has to give me? The cup in Psalms 57, verse 8, Jeremiah 25, verse 15, and Isaiah 51, verse 17, is the cup of God's wrath. We don't like talking about that, but our God is a holy and just God, and he must have justice. And if we pause for a moment and consider this, we realize that actually we too believe that. How could we stand at the horrors of Auschwitz and say, oh, it's okay, God forgives without any justice? How could we stand in the horrors of wars and what has happened in the world and say, oh, it's okay, God forgives without any justice? No. Our God is a holy and just God. He does not tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate sin for as opposed to his goodness and all that he is. And when we sin and rebel against him, we do incur his judgment. We do incur his wrath. And his wrath isn't some capricious temper of somebody who's lost their rag, but a loving response to sin. So this cup of wrath, this justice must be dealt with. And so Jesus is the one again who steps forward and takes it from the hand of God for us. And he drinks it drown, every drop. So that on the cross, God's justice was displayed as Jesus bears the weight and punishment of the sin for the world. As the high priest would say later on at the end of this chapter, it is expedient that one man should die for the people. So right. And only God's son could do it. Only the divine one could do it. He goes to avert the wrath of God for us. He goes because God loves us too. And in the mystery of God's love and God's justice, the cross is the answer. That sin is dealt with, that evil is dealt with, that love is shown. What an amazing, majestic, courageous, beautiful Savior and God we have this morning, do we not? So Jesus stepped forward and obeys his fellow. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Verse 14, the reason for it all. The high priest got it right. The expedient that one man should die for the people. Jesus would die for the sins of the world. So we stand this morning, brothers and sisters, with this portrait of Christ before you. What will you do with him? If you have followed him for many years, will you keep following him? Will you keep loving him? 
Will you keep serving him because he has given all for you? Will you let his love now this morning that we've sung about transform your hearts? I know it's hard. It's not always easy to follow the Lord. We're we're battling all sorts of things in life. Tiredness, illness, friends, family, people against our faith. Will you let his courage give you courage? Because Jesus promised that if you believe in me, the Father and I will come and live in you. Will you let his power be your strength? When you're tempted to wonder, is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? Look again at the living word of God and see the majesty that breaks forth from its pages. I know of no other, again, I hate using the term, religious figure who can justifiably make the claim to be the bread of life, but yet look at millions of Christians, billions of Christians across this world who have been satisfied in Christ. I know of no other person who gives people strength to walk into the darkest, rottenest places of this planet if his light shining on them. I know of no other good shepherd who loves us and sustains us. Friends this morning, oh Christian friend this morning, surely you have a testimony of how Jesus sustained you in darkest times. Christian friend who's facing bad results from the hospital who is facing that last great enemy, you need not do it alone, for he is the resurrection and the life. A Christian friend who is losing hope, who is struggling, who feels so weary, he is the vine who sustains and nurtures you. And when you are weak, and how many of us have felt weak? When you are weak, he is strong because his grace is more than sufficient for you. I love, there's a story told. How many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? <laughs> Great man, brilliant man. Charles Spurgeon, I'm trying to look like him. But... <laughs> Charles Spurgeon once was going through a really difficult time. He pastored a church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I mean, it's amazing. Anyone of the guy popped his clogs when he was young. He pastored a church at least 6,000, had all these agencies depending on him. And some days he had difficult days. Isn't it encouraging to know that sometimes the greatest saints have had difficult days? And Spurgeon was in his carriage riding home and he was struggling, he was, he was weeping. And he came home, and you're not supposed to do this, but he did it anyway. He opened his Bible at a random verse and he put his finger on it. And it said, Thy grace, my grace, is more than sufficient for thee. And he started laughing. First laugh he had had in weeks, and he said, Actually, yes, Lord, I suppose your grace probably is more than sufficient for me. And he said, It was like saying to the ocean, Fill this teapot. He is the vine. We are the branches. And the reason for it all, that this all happens as we look at, I mean, I love Easter. I really, really do love Easter. Not just for the Easter eggs, believe it or not. But I love it because here it gives shape to everything. The reason for it all is he would go to that cross and Paul got this because the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. To save and redeem us, to bring us back, to sort out God's justice. And then three days later, he'd walk out of the tomb alive forevermore. Caesar lived for himself. And we see the results of that hideous empire. Jesus lived and died that we may know God's forgiveness, love, and life everlasting. Caesar crossed the Rubicon and history was changed. Jesus crossed the Brook Kidron and history was changed. Friend, this morning, you have a choice. You will receive him through faith and repentance.
He will change everything for you. I was going to say I recommend it, but that sounds so, so pathetic. He is everything. But if you reject him, if you say, I'm not going to follow him, I want Caesar's empire, then, my friend, there is no hope for you in heaven or in eternity. Let us pray. Lord, forgive the foolishness of preaching. We know it is your appointed means to bring forth your word, but how, oh, how can I adequately describe your son? I pray this morning that we will have glimpsed something of his courage. That we will have seen his majesty. We will have seen his compassion, and yes, that compassion is available for us too that we will see in his obedience as he fulfilled your will perfectly and that you would help us to obey you too. And we thank you that the reason for it all was this, that when we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, our richest gain we do count as loss and poor contempt and all our pride because of the whole realm of nature were ours, that were an offering far too small to give to you. All our works, all our doings, all our strivings, none of that could placate your justice. But we turn and look to Golgotha. And we see the Son of God hanging on that cross. And we know that that is love so amazing, so divine. It does demand from us a response, our life, our all, our everything. So my Lord, this morning... Help me to follow you more faithfully and courageously. Help us as a church to faithfully and courageously follow you and by your spirit show your majesty and your beauty to the area around us. Help us to obey you, Lord. For if we love you and we have received your love, John reminds us that we will follow you, obey you. And if there's any here who do not know you this morning, Lord, may your Holy Spirit come and strive with them until they surrender to the majestic Jesus, the loving Saviour, and the compassionate Shepherd. In his name we pray. Amen. Ask the worship team to come up and sing our closing song for us.